Section 37 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 37 chapter fifty eight part one chapter fifty eight charles i while the king's affairs declined in england some events happened in scotland which seemed to promise him a more prosperous issue of the quarrel before the commencement of these civil disorders the earl of montrose a young nobleman of a distinguished family returning from his travels had been introduced to the king and had made an offer of his services but by the insinuations of the marquis afterwards duke of hamilton who possessed much of charles's confidence he had not been received with that distinction to which he thought himself justly entitled disgusted with this treatment he had forwarded all the violence of the covenanters and agreeably to the natural ardor of his genius he had employed himself during the first scottish insurrection with great zeal as well as success in levying and conducting their armies being commissioned by the tables to wait upon the king while the royal army lay at berwick he was so gained by the civilities and caresses of that monarch that he thenceforth devoted himself entirely though secretly to his service and entered into a close correspondence with him in the second insurrection a great military command was entrusted to him by the covenanters and he was the first that passed the tweed at the head of their troops in the invasion of england he found means however soon after to convey a letter to the king and by the infidelity of some about that prince hamilton as was suspected a copy of this letter was sent to levin the scottish general being accused of treachery and a correspondence with the enemy montrose openly avowed the letter and asked the generals if they dared to call their sovereign an enemy and by this bold and magnanimous behaviour he escaped the danger of an immediate prosecution as he was now fully known to be of the royal party he no longer concealed his principles and he endeavoured to draw those who had entertained like sentiments into a bond of association for his master's service though thrown into prison for this enterprise and detained some time he was not discouraged but still continued by his countenance and protection to infuse spirit into the distressed royalists among other persons of distinction who united themselves to him was lord napier of merchiston son of the famous inventor of the logarithms the person to whom the title of a great man is more justly due 
than to any other whom his country ever produced there was in scotland another party who professing equal attachment to the king's service pretended only to differ with montrose about the means of attaining the same end and of that party duke hamilton was the leader the nobleman had cause to be extremely devoted to the king not only by reason of the connection of blood which united him to the royal family but on account of the great confidence and favour with which he had ever been honoured by his master being accused by lord ray not without some appearance of probability of a conspiracy against the king charles was so far from harbouring suspicion against him that the very first time Hamilton came to court, he received him into his bedchamber, and passed alone the night with him. But such was the duke's unhappy fate or conduct, that he escaped not the imputation of treachery to his friend and sovereign, and though he at last sacrificed his life in the king's service, his integrity and sincerity have not been thought by historians entirely free from blemish perhaps and this is the more probable opinion the subtleties and refinements of his conduct and his temporizing maxims though accompanied with good intentions have been the chief cause of a suspicion which has never yet been either fully proved or refuted as much as the bold and vivid spirit of montrose prompted him to enterprising measures as much was the cautious temper of hamilton inclined to such as were moderate and dilatory while the former foretold that the scottish covenanters were secretly forming a union with the english parliament and inculcated the necessity of preventing them by some vigorous undertaking the latter still insisted that every such attempt would precipitate them into measures to which otherwise they were not perhaps inclined after the scottish convention was summoned without the king's authority the former exclaimed that their intentions were now visible and that if some unexpected blows were not struck to dissipate them they would arm the whole nation against the king the latter maintained the possibility of outvoting the disaffected party and securing by peaceful means the allegiance of the kingdom unhappily for the royal cause hamilton's representations met with more credit from the king and queen than those of montrose and the covenanters were allowed without interruption to proceed in all their hostile measures montrose then hastened to oxford where his invectives against hamilton's treachery concurring with the general prepossession and supported by the unfortunate event of his counsels were entered with universal probation influenced by the clamour of his party more than by his own suspicions charles as soon as hamilton appeared sent him prisoner to pendennis castle in cornwall his brother Laneric, who was also put under confinement found means to make his escape 
and to fly into Scotland. The king's ears were now open to Montrose's counsels, who proposed none but the boldest and most daring, agreeably to the desperate state of the royal cause in Scotland. Though the whole nation was subjected by the Covenanters, though great armies were kept on foot by them, and every place guarded by a vigilant administration, he undertook, by his own credit, and that of the few friends who remained to the king, to raise such commotions as would soon oblige the malcontents to recall those forces which had so sensibly thrown the balance in favour of the Parliament. Not discouraged with the defeat at Marston Moor, which rendered it impossible for him to draw any succour from England, he was content to stipulate with the Earl of Antrim, a nobleman of Ireland, for some supply of men from that country, and he himself, changing his disguises, and passing through many dangers, arrived in Scotland, where he lay concealed in the borders of the highlands, and secretly prepared the minds of his partisans for attempting some great enterprise. No sooner were the Irish landed, though not exceeding eleven hundred foot, very ill-armed, than Montrose declared himself and entered upon that scene of action which has rendered his name so celebrated. About eight hundred of the men of Athol flocked to his standard, five hundred men more, who had been levied by the Covenanters, were persuaded to embrace the royal cause, and with this combined force he hastened to attack Lord Elko, who lay at Perth with an army of six thousand men, assembled upon the first news of the Irish invasion. Montrose, inferior in number, totally unprovided with horse, ill-supplied with arms and ammunition, had nothing to depend on but the courage which he himself by his own example and the rapidity of his enterprises should inspire into his raw soldiers having received the fire of the enemy which was answered chiefly by a volley of stones he rushed amid them with his sword drawn threw them into confusion pushed his advantage and obtained a complete victory with the slaughter of two thousand of the covenanters this victory though it augmented the renown of montrose increased not his power or numbers the far greater part of the kingdom was extremely attached to the covenant and as such bore an affection to the royal cause were terrified by the established authority of the opposite party dreading the superior power of argyle who having joined his vassals to a force levied by the public was approaching with a considerable army montrose hastened northward in order to rouse again the marquis of huntley and the gordons who having before hastily taken arms had been instantly suppressed by the covenanters he was joined on his march by the earl of airlie with his two younger sons sir thomas and sir david ogilvy the eldest was at that time a prisoner with the enemy. He attacked at Aberdeen the Lord Burley, who commanded a force of 2,500 men. After a sharp combat by his undaunted courage, 
which in this situation was true policy and was also not unaccompanied with military skill he put the enemy to flight and in the pursuit did great execution upon them but by this second advantage he obtained not the end which he expected the envious nature of huntley jealous of montrose's glory rendered him averse to join an army where he himself must be so much eclipsed by the superior merit of the general argyle reinforced by the earl of lothian was behind him with a great army the militia of the northern counties murray ross caithness to the number of five thousand men opposed him in front and guarded the banks of the spey a deep and rapid river in order to elude these numerous armies he turned aside into the hills and saved his weak but active troops in badenoch after some marches and countermarches argyle came up with him at favy castle this nobleman's character though celebrated for political courage and conduct was very low for military prowess and after some skirmishes in which he was worsted he here allowed montrose to escape him by quick marches through these inaccessible mountains that general freed himself from the superior forces of the covenanters such was the situation of montrose that very good or very ill fortune was equally destructive to him and diminished his army after every victory his soldiers greedy of spoil but deeming the smallest acquisition to be unexhausted riches deserted in great numbers and went home to secure the treasures which they had acquired tired too and spent with hasty and long marches in the depth of winter through snowy mountains unprovided with every necessary they fell off and left their general almost alone with the irish who having no place to which they could retire still adhered to him in every fortune with these and some reinforcements of the athol men and macdonalds whom he had recalled montrose fell suddenly upon argyle's country and let loose upon it all the rage of war carrying off the cattle burning the houses and putting the inhabitants to the sword this severity by which montrose sullied his victories was the result of private animosity against the chieftain as much as of zeal for the public cause argyle collecting three thousand men marched in quest of the enemy who had retired with their plunder and he lay at innerlochy supposing himself still at a considerable distance from them the earl of seaforth at the head of the garrison of inverness who were veteran soldiers joined to five thousand new levied troops of the northern counties pressed the royalists on the other side and threatened them with inevitable destruction by a quick and unexpected march montrose hastened to innerlochy and presented himself in order of battle before the surprised but not affrighted covenanters 
Argyle alone, seized with a panic, deserted his army, who still maintained their ground, and gave battle to the royalists. After a vigorous resistance they were defeated, and pursued with great slaughter. And the power of the Campbells, that is Argyle's name, being thus broken, the Highlanders, who were in general well affected to the royal cause, began to join Montrose's camp in great numbers. Seaforth's army dispersed of itself at the very terror of his name, and Lord Gordon, eldest son of Huntley, having escaped from his uncle Argyle, who had hitherto detained him, now joined Montrose, with no contemptible number of his followers, attended by his brother, the Earl of Aboyne. The council at Edinburgh, alarmed at Montrose's progress, began to think of a more regular plan of defence against an enemy whose repeated victories had rendered him extremely formidable. They sent for Bailey, an officer of reputation from England, and joining him in command with Uri, who had again enlisted himself among the king's enemies, they sent them to the field with a considerable army against the royalists. Montrose, with a detachment of eight hundred men, had attacked Dundee, a town extremely zealous for the covenant, and having carried it by assault, had delivered it up to be plundered by his soldiers. When Bailey and Urie, with their whole force, were unexpectedly upon him. His conduct and presence of mind in this emergence appeared conspicuous. Instantly he called off his soldiers from plunder, put them in order, secured his retreat by the most skilful measures, and having marched sixty miles in the face of an enemy much superior without stopping, or allowing his soldiers the least sleep or refreshment, he at last secured himself in the mountains. Bailey and Uri now divided their troops, in order the better to conduct the war against an enemy who surprised them as much by the rapidity of his marches as by the boldness of his enterprises. Uri, at the head of four thousand men, met him at Aldern, near Inverness, and encouraged by the superiority of number, for the Covenanters were double the Royalists, attacked him in the post which he had chosen Montrose, having placed his right wing in strong ground, drew the best of his forces to the other, and left no main body between them, a defect which he artfully concealed by showing a few men through the trees and bushes with which that ground was covered. That Uri might have no leisure to perceive the stratagem, he instantly led his left wing to the charge, and making a furious impression upon the Covenanters, drove them off the field, and gained a complete victory. In this battle the valour of young Napier, son to the lord of that name, shone out with signal lustre. Bailey now advanced in order to revenge Uri's discomfiture, but at Alford he met himself with a like fate. Montrose, weak in cavalry, here lined his troops of horse with infantry, and after putting the enemy's horse to rout, 
fell with united force upon their foot, who were entirely cut in pieces, though with the loss of the gallant Lord Gordon on the part of the Royalists. And having thus prevailed in so many battles, which his vigour ever rendered as decisive as they were successful, he summoned together all his friends and partisans, and prepared himself for marching into the southern provinces, in order to put a final period to the power of the Covenanters, and dissipate the Parliament, which with great pomp and solemnity they had summoned to meet at St. Johnston's. While the fire was thus kindled in the north of the island, it blazed out with no less fury in the south, the parliamentary and royal armies, as soon as the season would permit, prepared to take the field, in hopes of bringing their important quarrel to a quick decision. The passing of the self-denying ordinance had been protracted by so many debates and intrigues that the spring was far advanced before it received the sanction of both houses, and it was thought dangerous by many to introduce so near the time of action such great innovations into the army had not the punctilious principles of essex engaged him amidst all the disgusts which he received to pay implicit obedience to the parliament this alteration had not been effected without some fatal accident since notwithstanding his prompt resignation of the command a mutiny was generally apprehended Fairfax, or more properly speaking, Cromwell under his name, introduced at last the new model into the army, and threw the troops into a different shape. From the same men new regiments and new companies were formed, different officers appointed, and the whole military force put into such hands as the independents could rely on. Besides members of Parliament who were excluded, many officers unwilling to serve under the new generals threw up their commissions and unwarily facilitated the project of putting the army entirely into the hands of that faction though the discipline of the former parliamentary army was not contemptible a more exact plan was introduced and rigorously executed by these new commanders Valour, indeed, was very generally diffused over the one party as well as the other. During this period, discipline also was attained by the forces of the Parliament, but the perfection of the military art in concerting the general plans of action and the operations of the field seems still on both sides to have been in a great measure wanting. Historians at least perhaps from their own ignorance and inexperience, have not remarked anything but a headlong, impetuous conduct, each party hurrying to a battle, where valour and fortune chiefly determine the success. The great ornament of history during these reigns are the civil, not the military transactions. End of section 37, chapter 58, part 1.